you for your word this morning. Um, we ask that you'd grant us insight into your word, into the life and world transforming power that's in this word, that we wouldn't take it lightly, and that we learn from it this morning. Uh, we love you and we commit our time to you. In Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. This triple command here in verse 19, remember we just got done reading about how God allows suffering, and suffering is always to our benefit, so we should count suffering joy. God tests us, but he tests us in order to approve us. That was in verse 12. But how do we persevere under trial? What's that mean, to persevere under trial? What's God trying to do with us? Basically, the rest of James is about this, the whole five chapters of James. It talks about our behavior when faced with trials of any kind. And verse 19 is a partial summary of that. How we listen, how we speak, and how we restrain our anger. This triple command here, listening, speaking, restraining our anger, this applies to how we suffer, but it also applies to what we do as God's people, how we live as Christians every day of our lives. For the original audience of this letter, first century Jewish Christians, really early on in the church, before Paul, Suffering and living were one and the same for these people. It's what makes this letter so important for them and so relevant for them. And that's increasingly one and the same for Western Christians, not to the same extent, at least not now. But then how much more should we expect God to hold us accountable for believing what he says in his word and knowing what it is and following it? So this morning we're going to pull four life-giving commands out of this text. I want to pull four commands that are going to help us to not live a worthless religion. We don't want our religion to be worthless. We have to do these things, these commands. Basically, they're be quiet, listen, receive, and abide. Be quiet, listen, receive, abide. The first one is be quiet. So control your speech. James tells us to control our speech. Obviously, there in verse 19, it's also down in verse 26, and then there's a whole chapter in James that, God willing, we'll get to later, all about taming the tongue. There's an obvious practical connection between not talking and listening, right? Humans aren't good at full duplex communication. When we're yapping, we're not hearing. A lot of people have pointed out, I tried to trace the root of this quote. I think as far back as it probably goes is the Greek Stoic Zeno. He famously said, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, so you should be listening twice as much as you talk, at least. Yeah, all the wives said amen. So the, so the rabbis put it even better. This is a quote from the rabbis a long time ago. This is the reason why we have two ears and only one mouth, that we may hear more and speak less. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and to keep it within its proper bounds. The general principle here is applicable to all kinds of relationships. I'm sure you're thinking about some of those things in your head, but it's especially important when we're suffering and we're most likely to say something that we might regret or we should regret later. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 21.23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And let's just read James 1.26 again. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. 
bridle our tongue. We're commanded here to bridle our tongue like you would a powerful horse, right? That's what a bridle is for. And if we don't, we're deceiving ourselves and our religion's worthless. Notice the relationship here in verse 26 between not controlling our speech and self-deception. Careless words can actually lead us into self-deception. Now, religion here, this word here, refers to external observance. And the point is, is it doesn't matter. All of these things that we do, how much we go to church, how much we go to Bible studies, how much we, you know, do baptism, communion, all the money, time, all this stuff, all the religious things that we do, it's all useless. You're deceiving yourself. We're pretending to be religious if we're not thinking about how to control our tongue. That's what this is teaching us. There's an 8th century monk, um, Bede, Bede, I don't know how to say his name. He said this here about James. He said, James says here that even if someone appears to be doing the good works of the faith, which he's learned he ought to do, none of this matters unless he restrains his tongue from slanders, lies, blasphemies, nonsense, verbosity, and other things which lead to sin. For those of us predisposed to ver verbosity, like I am, kind of, this is like nodding your head back there. This is uh, maybe a difficult command to hear, but it's, it's one we need to hear. So question for yourself, question for myself. When was the last time you fired off a careless, a rash, or a defensive word to someone, especially someone you love, like a wife, husband, child? I was going to give an example here, but I can't give one without embarrassing myself, so I'm not going to. Uh, I don't have to think very far back to think of examples of this in my own life. I'm, I'm quick to fire off, especially to defend myself. Yet Proverbs, nine, or Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The psalmist said, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And Jesus himself, in Matthew 12, speaking to the Pharisees, he says this, he said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Be challenged with me in prayer this week to just ask God for help controlling our speech. It's not an insignificant thing. This is maybe, this isn't even the tip of the iceberg. There's a num number of scriptures you can find that talk about this topic. Pray with the psalmist that God would set a guard on our mouths and keep watch over the door of our lips. Someone truly religious in the best sense of that term, controls their speech, especially when things are difficult. So next, I want us to see that, how to accurately perceive any situation, accurately perceive any situation. This isn't one of the four commands I pulled out here. In fact, perception isn't a word that James uses. If you look it up in a dictionary, it means to be aware of something, to recognize or to envision or to understand or to discern something rightly. So while James doesn't use that word, he does say that we should listen and receive the word implanted. These are our second and third commands this morning. And I think that 
perceiving a situation correctly is a summary of these two. So accurate perception requires that we first listen. Quick to hear, James tells us in verse 19, quick to hear what? Is this a general principle for all times? Is it that we should just you know, shut up and listen more? Yeah, it is. Or is this referring specifically to the word implanted down in verse 21? Both of these actually make sense. Of course, it's a general principle. Of course, we need to listen so that we, we can receive the word implanted. It's especially countercultural now to, to focus on listening. I think everyone wants to be heard, but no one really wants to listen. Have you ever read the comments at the end of a news article online? I have to use that example because I don't even do social media anymore, but I presume it's the same as it was when I quit doing it. There's lots of opinions. There's lots and lots of words. Virtually nobody cares to listen, though. Maybe the act of talking is supposed to be therapeutic, like if you're expressing yourself and getting something off your chest. It's good for you. A psychologist named Paul Tournier said, listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. Everybody wants to talk. Nobody cares to listen. You ever talk to somebody who is constantly trying to finish your sentences after you say them? You know, like, sorry if I do that to you, by the way. Don't know if I do. It's something I would do. It's kind of annoying, right? Well, at least they're listening to what you're saying enough to predict what they think you should say next. It could be worse. Remember when God called Samuel the first time in 1 Samuel 3? Samuel replied, here I am, and then he ran up to Eli. And, you know, and Eli said, I didn't call you, son, go back to bed. Well, this happens a couple times. And then on the third time, Eli realized what was going on. He told Samuel, go lay back down, and when he calls you again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Like, God's trying to call you, and you're not listening. Well, Samuel did this, and as a boy, God spoke to him, and he didn't stop throughout Samuel's life. In fact, Samuel was called the seer because he was such a great prophet. James is telling us here, not to participate in the dialogues of the deaf. We should carefully listen, especially to wisdom that comes from God's word. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening, should be our attitude. Okay, so next command. Accurate perception requires that we control our speech. It also requires here, verse 21, that we receive the word implanted. True perception requires the best perspective on things, right? And the most accurate perspective on things is God's perspective on things. And he surprise, reveals that perspective to us. Receive the word implanted in verse 21. First notice there's two prerequisites to receiving the word. I'd summarize these as moral purity, one, and the other one is humility. These two things are both in verse 21. Put aside all moral filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Now, the King James <laughs> translates this, the original King James, the superfluidity of naughtiness. You should read King James just for phrases like that. I don't want us to miss the connection that James is making here between these three commands in verse 19, moral purity, and then being ready to receive the word implanted. Let's not miss that. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. When we're slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger, we don't achieve the righteousness of God, not for ourselves and not for anyone else who's hearing us. You know, as a little aside here, James doesn't say that we should always listen only and never speak and never become angry. Like Jesus and the money changers in the temple, 
there's a righteous indignation that isn't sinful. Hating what God hates is not sin. Racism, abortion, murder, but I repeat myself, drugging and mutilating kids, celebrating anything that God condemns, these things should upset us, and that's okay. But how often can we rationalize our sinful anger? Paul said in Ephesians 4 to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. With the therefore, the beginning of verse 21, James is connecting to this being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, with being ready to receive the word. There was an obvious way that this was true for the original audience, which was early Jewish Christians being dispersed under persecution. They didn't have the written word like we do today, and the only way they were going to hear it was as if there wasn't a bunch of contentious argument and discuss They had to hear the word from somebody. So there's some real practical thing going on here in James. He's just saying, stop that. Just be quiet and listen to the word. But it also applies more generally in that moral purity is important to cultivating the kind of soil where the implanted word, seed, will grow and be productive in our lives. Moral purity is important. Look at verse 27 where he says to keep yourself unstained from the world. Literally, literally the word here is spotless. It's the same word. Question, again, for you and for me, how much of your prayer time is spent praying for purity versus praying for safety or praying for freedom from hardship or suffering or something you don't want or, or praying for healing? You know, none of these things are necessarily bad. How much do you pray for purity? This was a convicting one for me. I don't know that I regularly pray for purity. Lord, keep us pure today as we travel and go visit grandma and grandpa or whatever we're praying for. You know, purity is not the first thing that pops on my list, and, and maybe it should be more important. I found one um, commentator who said on this topic that we pray for safety instead of purity because we don't see impurity as dangerous. But purity can be really dangerous, right, especially if we believe what's written in this book. It's a direct impediment to, a, a, to receiving the implanted word, according to James. Without the word, we have no perspective. We're blind. And rather than becoming a tool of God, we're tools, all right, but we're not his tool. Okay, so the second prerequisite to receiving the word is just humility, meekness, gentleness. That's an easy one. I don't think I have to elaborate on that. Put aside your old life characterized by moral impurities, and in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. A lot of commentators take verse 21, like verse 18, to be referring to salvation, and others don't. Um, in this case, I happen to agree with the others, but I want you to know that I could be wrong. This is how I'm interpreting this passage. Um, for one thing, the original audience here was already believers. So when James says, you know, to save your souls, I think he, maybe he wasn't referring to eternal salvation. So some think, therefore, that this teaches that salvation can be lost and then has to be, has to be re, they have to be resaved. So that's why this is in here. Yet as a lot of other um, scholars point out, the word here that's translated save your soul can also be translated save your life, and, and usually is, actually. That whole Greek phrase that's in here isn't used anywhere else to refer to eternal salvation, either in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, or in the New Testament, written in Greek. So I think the argument's strong that it could be better translated here in verse 21 to save your life or to save yourself. 
Jesus himself actually used this phrase in Luke 6 when he says, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? And then he saved a man's life right after that by healing his crippled hand. So if we read it this way, verse 21 reads, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your life, to give you purpose, to make you whole. This is a theme in James, actually, wholeness and perfection, so that you can be a tool of God, not an impediment. Now the word implanted in this verse um, isn't a common word, but the, the metaphor is common, right? This agricultural metaphor of the seed. The seed needs fertile soil. In this case, the fertile soil is moral purity and humility. The ability to, to save our life, to progress in our Christian walk and to accomplish eternal things, even and especially in spite of trials and suffering, this doesn't come from us. This comes from the implanted word growing and combined with accurate observation, accurate listening, accurate perception allows us the ability to figure out what's really going on, especially when things are tough, and to see it from an eternal perspective. Perception is necessary but not sufficient, James tells us. It's not enough to just have the right diagnosis of a situation and know the right biblical response. We actually have to act on what we know. Be quiet, listen, receive the word. It can save you from the consequences of our sin both temporally and eternally. It can save us from the consequences of death. This is verse 15 back in James 1. God's good. He wants what's good for us. He tests us to approve us. Verse 12, we can live life to its fullest. We can be whole, not be divided, fractured people. Be quiet, listen, receive, and then fourth, we have to abide. Abide. So our fourth command out of our text this morning is to free yourself by active obedience. Free yourself by active obedience. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not mere, merely hearers. Verse 22. Just like we can deceive ourselves by talking too much, we can delude ourselves by only hearing. If that hearing doesn't produce action. Similar idea of ways we can self-deceive ourselves. Here the word means to miscalculate or to reason Incorrectly, Paul uses the same word in Colossians when he's talking about protection from persuasive arguments that can delude their hearers. So if we merely hear, we're not really even listening in a sense of the word listening, because listening kind of implies something a little bit more in English, doesn't it? The way we use it. A psychologist might say that hearing is passive, but listening is active. If you're a parent, you probably already know the difference. Josiah, did you hear me? Well, then how come you're not listening? Right. By which I mean, how come you're not obeying? I don't know why I used Josiah as the example. It was my Josiah, by the way. <laughs> Prove yourself an effectual doer, not a hearer who deludes themselves. The famous mirror metaphor. This is, this is great. It turns out, if you research this a little bit, the mirror was used in Hellenistic ethical teaching. It was a common metaphor use, not just in the Bible, for moral instruction. It allowed you to be introspective, to see yourself as you really are. So if a natural man looks at his face in the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like, he's not using the mirror for its intended purpose, which is to turn accurate perception into action, see something, do something about it. The forgetful hearer misses the whole point and misses any potential for benefit. 
The metaphorical mirror here, of course, as James uses it, is God's word. This is what we should use for self-reflection, but not only self-reflection. The word gives us the knowledge and the ability to move from hearing to obedience and then to blessing. The proper way to use the mirror is to look intently at the perfect law of liberty, the words James uses, and abide by that, not being a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this person's actions will be blessed. The perfect law of liberty, literally the perfect Torah of freedom. At first, this might sound a little strange that law would be, would liberate us, right? Isn't law the opposite of liberty by definition? However, when the born-again believer listens to the implanted word and perceives our situations from an eternal perspective that the word brings, we can see in the mirror not just how we actually look. We can see the person that God tells us that we are, the person we're becoming, actually, the person he will turn us into. This isn't the natural man looking in, in the mirror. It's the regenerate man looking in the mirror. And the regenerate man sees a harmonious reflection in the mirror of God's word. Not perfect, like we can perfectly reflect God's word or anything, but the nature that Christ gave us after we first repented and believed, that's a different nature. We're different people. We're supposed to be different people. This sounds like something Paul would later say and teach in Philippians 3, where he encourages us to live up to the, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Right? Sounds kind of like that. To perceive God's truth and to not obey it is to forget who we are. It's literally to forget who we are as born-again children of God. One person said that true freedom is the opportunity and the ability to give expression to what we truly are. That's real freedom. This might sound familiar in a lot of ways to our culture, which was summarized by a philosopher, a Canadian guy named Charles Taylor, who called our culture expressive individualism, or said our culture is characterized by expressive individualism, expressive individualism, where our subjective sense of inner self determines who we are, right? Not something outside of us. And once we figure out who we actually are, who our true self is on the inside, we have to display that publicly and other people can affirm us, right? Have to affirm us, actually, lest they be labeled intolerant. Slogans like be true to yourself or follow your heart or find yourself or you do you, this, this, these are all um, a reflection of this kind of philosophy, even if people don't recognize it as such. But there's an element of truth in this. Right? Like any good deception, there's a little bit of truth in it, or maybe even a lot of truth in it. True freedom is the opportunity and ability to express what we really are at the deepest level. James is saying this. The question is, what determines what we are? Right? Is it our feelings that determine who we really are? Our culture would tell us that that's the case, right? Yet there's a lot of outside voices in our culture to tell us what those feelings should be and tell us how we should identify and how we should act based on that identity, especially if that identity, you know, is risky or violates traditional norms. Expressing in action our truest self is really true freedom. That's not incorrect. But only if you know who you actually are, right? That's important. How we feel doesn't define us. How we identify does not determine who we actually are at the most fundamental level, especially if that identity category is something superficial, more superficial like sex or gender or gender identity or your ethnicity or your, even your job, 
your profession or political affiliation or anything else. Christian, do you know who you actually are, who God says that you are? It's amazing to me how God's law, far from being restrictive or repressive, is freeing in the deepest sense of that word. Because when we figure out who we are, according to him, and he would know, wouldn't he? He created us. We know who we really are. We should live like we're that person, right? That's freedom. If we miss that, nothing else we do can make us free. In fact, to miss that is to remain in bondage, right? Scripture would tell us. True freedom here in James isn't just a one-time thing. We don't just hear and listen and obey once, right? We abide. Verse 25 says abide by the perfect law of liberty. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Jesus said to those Judeans who'd believed him, if you continue to follow my teaching, you're really my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never, have never been anyone's slaves. How can you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. Anyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. I'm telling you the things that I have seen while I'm with the Father. As for you, practice the things heard from the Father. You want to be free? Freedom sounds good, right? I want to be free. It's worth mentioning at this point that James is assuming, James' audience here is, he assumes our believers. It's written to earliest Christian church. So first, the first prerequisite here would be that you have to know Christ, or nothing else in James would make any sense. It doesn't even apply. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? That whosoever believes be saved and have eternal life shall not perish. If you're not in Christ, then you can't experience the true freedom. That's the prerequisite. I wouldn't want to spend... 30 minutes in James and not say that. If you, don't, if you are not in Christ, none of these things apply to you. You can't try to be an effectual doer without having the power inside you to help you do it, right? And that doesn't come from you. So know that. Um, if that's something you don't quite understand, just grab your neighbor. Don't leave here. Don't walk out of here not understanding what the gospel is just because we use the word a bunch. It really is good news. You can be united to Christ. Nothing special we did to get there except acknowledge that we need him to repent and confess and turn to him. Now, if you're already united to Christ, if you're already a Christian, brother, sister, do you want to live a life of purpose and wholeness and peace and freedom? James gives us a recipe here to do it, and it's really not that hard. Be quiet, listen, receive the word, do what it says, repeat. That's it. James doesn't say that he'll remove our salvation when we when we fail to live up to that standard. He doesn't teach that anywhere in here, but he does challenge us with what worthless religion looks like. Here's how it might look in our context. A bunch of self-absorbed, argumentative, deaf people pretending to dialogue, but really just mirroring a self-righteous, religious version of the expressive individualism that we absorb from our culture. I had to write that one down. Those are my words, though. Even worse than that, though, we deceive ourselves because we couch it in religiosity and pretension. Verse 26 and 27, in closing this 
passage out gives us three dimensions of true Christianity, of true religion. True Christianity manifests in our words, in our hands, and in our hearts. James tells us in these verses, in our words, in our hands, in our hearts. These are great questions to ask ourselves. Our words, is your speech under control? Like, really? Are you working on it if you're not there yet? I've worked on it more this week than historically. (laughs) How about your hands? Are you personally and physically involved in caring for the vulnerable in our world? Do you guard your heart from the corruption of the world? Pure and undefiled religion, James says, is to visit orphans and widows in their place of adversity. Orphans and widows in first century Judea and across the Roman world, they were the most vulnerable categories of people, right, with no one to care for them. We can broaden this category today, though, and hear the command to serve the poor and the vulnerable in our own context. We have to go and seek them out, not just to give them a handout or to write them a check, but to visit them, spend some time with them, invest something of yourself, building a relationship with somebody who needs it. Now, this command isn't here just to help the unfortunate. I mean, that's a, it's a good thing, right? And it's certainly not here to help wealthy American Christians feel good about ourselves. <clears throat> James' audience, for the most part, were materially poor early Christians, in part because they, choosed, they chose truth over their own livelihoods, their own well-being, and their own comfort. This command's also here because we need it. We need to be involved. We need to be engaged with our own hands. We need to have some skin in the game. Now, there's a book um, written called When Helping Hurts that a lot of you have read uh, by uh, Corbett and Fickert, other names. It's a book on poverty alleviation from a Christian perspective. We tend to think of helping the poor exclusively in material terms, but there's really all kinds of poverty. We're made in the image of a relational God, fundamentally relational. He's been relational for all eternity, Father, Son, Spirit. We're made in his image, so we're relational also. Our relationships are fundamental to who we are as human beings. Our relationship with God is the preeminent one, but our relationship with self, our relationship with other people, and our relationship with the rest of creation are fundamental relationships. The fall is real, and these relationships get broken, right? And when any of those relationships is broken, there's real poverty. A lot of people in our society are impoverished, including many of us. And the solution to all poverty is through relational restoration, not just to meet an initial need. This starts with our relationship with God. James tells us that pure religion, the only kind of religion that is worth anything, is to go find the most vulnerable and impoverished people that we can and to visit them in their place of adversity, where they are. If you don't see opportunities around here where we live, so close to Albuquerque, then you're not really looking. Just the tip, tip of the iceberg for some, some of the things, you know, some of the opportunities. There's Juntos kids in the International District of Albuquerque that our church is a part of. How about blessing and serving teachers and families at Amontoya in the name of Christ through Shine? What about families and individuals in the East Mountains who just need firewood to heat their home? What about kids and families with incarcerated parents or ex-cons who are incarcerated themselves and having trouble reintegrating? What about international students through ISI? What about our missionaries in India, Ethiopia, Peru? What about the growing crisis of homelessness in Albuquerque that we all see every time we go into town? 
Just because government programs seem to have made a lot of these problems around us a lot worse, it doesn't mean that our duty as Christians is mitigated, right? It doesn't. Would James recognize the work of my hands, the work of your hands, to be those of spirit-filled disciples of Jesus caring for the most vulnerable and the impoverished among us? Hope so. Finally, the third way that true Christianity manifests is in our hearts, he tells us. What do you do to guard your own heart, to keep it unstained, literally spotless, the word he used here? What do you watch? What do you read? If anyone reads anymore. What do you listen to? Do you have someone in your life that holds you accountable for your own purity? Do you believe God's word when he teaches that impurity is dangerous? We don't think of it as dangerous as we should. Do you pray for purity as much as you pray for other things? Do our words and our hands and our hearts prove us to be effective doers of the word? Or are we just deceiving ourselves? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you um, for your word this morning in James. Thank you that uh, it can cut us and I pray that it would, Lord, and that it would cause us to, to talk a little less and to listen a little better and to give more fertile ground to your word, Lord, so that we can abide by it. Would you help us to avoid pretension and deception and be effectual doers with our tongues and with our hands and with our hearts? May we love not only with word but also in deed and truth. And that you receive all the glory for it. We love you. Pray this in Christ's name.